All right, Brody, thank you for leading us in that way. Very apt for the, the passage tonight. Um, my name is Joseph, if uh, we haven't met yet. Um, I have a brother whose name is Josh. And um, tonight I get to tell stories about him because he's not here. Uh, raise your hand if you have um, a sibling or if you grew up with siblings. Wow, almost everybody in the room. Okay, so then these stories will be... Um, much appreciated by you. So yeah, I grew up with one brother. He's three years older than me, and um, he uh, um, he got all the height in the family. Um, he's six three, and I'm like five nine, five ten on a good day. Um, and uh, we grew up uh, racing bikes, um, BMX, mountain biking, um, playing any sport with a ball, and we were super competitive. Um, if we were playing basketball in the backyard, um, we would very quickly get in an argument. No, the ball was out on you. No, the ball was out on you. Um, I would then pick up the basketball and punt it um, either at him or into the woods uh, because I was really mad either about losing um, or just because we were arguing. And, um, and so uh, naturally, we grew up in a house that had a lot of conflict there was a lot of tension in the house. Um, usually, uh, it was because of something that I had done, um, or, or him too, but he was saved way earlier than I was, so I think the sanctification process started working a little earlier for him. Uh, for me, it didn't happen until like 17. But um, uh, needless to say, there was a lot um, going on in our home, um, and a lot of it was because of sibling rivalry. And, and so that's what we're going to see tonight a little bit in our passage in Genesis 25 is some si- sibling rivalry. We're going to wrap up Genesis 25. Um, and, and so uh, you're going to see a lot of tension, um, and the Lord will resolve that tension. But this passage is broken down into two main sections. Verses 19 through 26 is uh, focused on Isaac and Rebekah, and then verses 27 through 34 is focused on Jacob and Esau. And in both of these passages, both of these sections— Um, you're going to see the main theme of being God's sovereign grace and God's sovereign plan. You're going to see these play out over and over and over again. And I'm going to say that those words a lot tonight. And so y'all remember back um, when we started Genesis through this journey, um, Spencer opened up the series talking about uh, what the Toledot was. The Toledot means that um, these are the generations of. Right? And every time we see that in the scriptures, it's saying this is a new episode. So we're closing one episode, we're opening another episode. Uh, and so last week we closed the Abraham episode, and we're about to open an Isaac's episode. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into Genesis 25, verse 19. Father, I thank you so much for tonight. I thank you for all of the people that you have brought into this room. God, I thank you so much for your word. Because I know that your word has the power to transform lives. As your Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts, I pray that you would grant us new appetites tonight. Lord, I pray that that some would turn away from sin for the very first time. I pray that that someone be convicted. I pray that we would be challenged. I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be trained. And and, uh, I pray that we would walk away from tonight clearly more appreciating your grace and your sovereign plan. Help us to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis 25, starting at verse 19, says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. 
Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, and the Aramean to be his wife. So this passage opens with this genealogical data, and it's talking about the true heir, Isaac, and his new wife, Rebekah. It reminds us that uh, where she came from. And so in this new episode, we have some lingering questions that are in the air that we need to answer. Will Isaac live up to the spiritual legacy of his father, Abraham? Will Isaac and Rebekah struggle and falter like Abraham and Sarah did in their marriage? Will they trust in God's perfect timing and plan, or will they, they scheme and, and try to do things their own way? We're going to see uh, glaring shortcomings in Isaac and in his children. We're going to see highs and lows, ebbs and flows. The Bible, the reason I love the Bible, one reason, is it's not afraid to tell the truth, warts and all. It doesn't hold anything back. Right? So look at verse 21. It says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So first off, Isaac models faith by going to the Lord in prayer. Why? What was the problem? Well, his wife was barren. And so there's already tension in the narrative. Isaac's mom, Sarah, also had trouble having children. So Isaac talks to the Lord. He intercedes for his wife because he knows God hears. God sees. God knows. And so he, he, he graciously grants conception because one thing that he realized was that children aren't guaranteed. Yes, God's sovereign grace continues the line of the promised seed, but that they have to wait. We know that this wasn't a quick answer to prayer because Isaac is 40 right here in this text. But then later in verse 26, we learn that he's 60 when Jacob and Esau are born. So they struggled with infertility for 20 years. That's a long time. And it's really something that only those who've struggled with that can understand. That's not a quick answer to prayer. That's a, that's a, that's a test of faith. But Isaac knew that he was blessed. He knew that he was to receive God's intervention and that only the Lord could do this thing. Only the Lord could cause his wife to be pregnant, right? So he humbly goes to the Lord and asks God to do what no man can do. And so Isaac learned from his dad's mistake. And surely Rebekah had heard the stories of how Sarah impatiently gave Hagar to Abraham to get children. And so Isaac leads his wife impatiently waiting and crying out to the Lord, and they trust in God's sovereign plan, his provision, his timing. And so one question I had when I was studying this is, if, if you trust the Lord for your own salvation, do you trust him for the day-to-day things in your life? For the big decisions, for the small decisions? If you're trusting him for, for your salvation of your soul, are you trusting him for the small things in life and for those big decisions? Because God is faithful in the big things and in the small things. And he brings clarity and relieves the tension by graciously granting Rebecca to conceive. And this conception is above and beyond anything that they would have asked or imagined because in his sovereign plan, he gave two children. As we look at verse 22, notice how Isaac set the example of faith and prayed for his wife, and she does likewise. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. So Rebecca had a tough pregnancy. Now, some women seem to absolutely love pregnancy. Have you ever 
seen or interacted with some women who are like, this is the best thing in the world. I love everything about it. It's awesome. And then some of them are like, I hate this. This is the worst part of my entire life. I'd never want to do this ever again. But I feel like most women are kind of like in the middle, you know? Um, although I'm not a woman, um, so I don't know what that is like. Although I did one time work at an office where my desk was right beside the women's bathroom. Um, and there were a couple women who were pregnant in the office. And I felt really bad for them because I'm talking the morning sickness lasted the whole day. And, and so, like, that's no fun. It's not fun for anybody, right? Rebecca didn't have an easy pregnancy. Verse 22 tells us that the children were struggling together within her. Literally, that means that they were crushing each other inside of her. So this is pre-birth sibling rivalry, right? And y'all remember, Rebecca's no pansy. She's a strong woman, right? And, and, and so she's crying out to the Lord because she's in serious pain. And she felt like there was a war within her. And she's like, Lord, why? Like, why? What's going on inside of me? And you have to remember, there's no ultrasounds. There's no sonograms. She had no idea that she had twin boys inside of her womb. So the tension is high. And God brings clarity by answering Rebecca's prayer in verse 23. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So God responds to Rebecca's prayer by explaining the struggle within her. And by doing so, God tells us the plot line for the remainder of the Jacob Esau story. God prophesied animosity, rivalry, and division. He also flips the script and goes outside of the cultural norms of the day by saying the older will serve the younger. So God works in mysterious ways. And this is his sovereign plan on display. The Apostle Paul would later use this exact prophecy as an explanation of election. In Romans chapter 9, this is what it says. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So this is God's work of election in Genesis. His sovereign grace is, show, is choosing a people for himself, not based upon anything that they had done or haven't done. Kent Hughes in his commentary said, the selection of Jacob individually and of the Israelites corporately was solely due to divine choice. God's hatred must be understood in the relative sense. God did not hate Esau and the Edomites, but in comparison with his choice of Jacob and the Israelites, they were hated. This relative use of hate was also employed by Jesus himself. If you remember in Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Basically saying, your love for Christ is so great that you say he is life. There's nothing more than him. God, if you, even if you take my wife, even if you take my kids, no matter what happens, I love you. You are life. I love you so much that it looks like hate for everyone else in my life. So God turns everything upside down and chooses Jacob, the younger, over Esau, the firstborn. But God has done this before. Abel over Cain, Seth 
over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael. Later, we're going to see Joseph over his brothers. Tradition, nature, not nor cultural norms can trump God's grace. It doesn't matter how you were born, what family you were born into, or what order in the family you were born in. It doesn't matter what tradition, skills, talents, or treasures your family has, or you were born into or with. You still need to be born again. It doesn't matter if you were born morally prone to rebellion or prone to law-keeping. You still need to be born again. Christian is not a title that you were given because you were born into a family of believers. Too many people today are nominal Christians. They're they're Christian by name only because they think that they were uh, a Christian because they're born into a Christian family. Or they think they're a Christian because they were baptized when they were a baby. That doesn't make you a Christian. To be a Christian is not social identification. If I stand on the street corner and I'm dressed in a onesie that looks like a dog and I demand people to call me a dog and I bark and I say, I'm a dog, call me a dog. Does that make me a dog? No, it doesn't make me a dog. If you call yourself a Christian and you live like the world, are you a true follower of Jesus? Because a true Christian is a follower of Jesus who has personally been confronted with a holy God and the wickedness of their own sin. And then they confess that sin and they acknowledge their rebellion in the face of holy God. And then they repent with godly sorrow over their sin. And then they turn from their sin and they turn to Jesus. A true Christian is someone who then submits to Christ as Lord, not only as Savior, but as Lord as well, and to his word, and they obey his word. A genuine Christian acknowledges that Jesus is the sovereign Lord, and Jesus is the slain lamb. A true Christian knows that Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is Savior, and they submit and obey. It's not just one or the other. But back to God's response to Rebecca's prayer. God has a plan and a purpose in everything. And maybe her suffering was for the very purpose that she would ask God what's going on and he would reveal his plan just like he did in his word for us today to see his sovereign plan. He's exercising his sovereign plan and bringing clarity to the tension which will soon move from within her to outside of her. Look at verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, and behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, that's what Esau means, all of his body, like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand, holding Esau's hill. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. Can you imagine having twins at 60? I cannot. Um, I actually... I, I found a picture of when they were born. I found a picture of the babies. But this is, this is what they look like. Um, so that was taken the moment that they uh, were born. But um, it looks like he has a onesie on. Uh, so the first descriptions that were given of Jacob and Esau focus on their outward appearance, right? Their physical um, actions. And, and Esau, the firstborn, is the hairy crusher. That's what his name means. Okay, he's, he's the father of the Edomites. He's the original redneck. He's the rough and gruff and tough dude. Jacob is the hill grabber. He's the father of the Jews. He's a trickster. 
He's a, a, a tripper, an overreacher. In his commentary, Sidney Greganus says this, Edom refused her brother Israel safe passage through their country in Numbers chapter 20. King David was finally able to subjugate Edom in 2 Samuel 8, but Edom regained its independence and later joined Babylonia in driving Judah into exile and tearing down Jerusalem. At Jesus' birth, King Herod was an Edomite, and he sought to kill Jesus. So Jacob and Esau struggled with one another would extend beyond their own personal lives into nations of Israel and Edom. And God would still use Jacob. God would, listen to this, God would use Jacob, a sinner, a plotter, a schemer, a trickster, to demonstrate God's grace that he trumps over and through obstacles inside and outside of your life, which transitions into the next part of the narrative where we see Jacob and Esau as youth. Look at verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. So he's a rugged outdoorsman, aggressive, violent man, while Jacob was a quiet man. He was single-minded and maybe a man full of integrity. It says that he was dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So I found a picture of of the teenage boys later, actually, too. Um, This is what they look like. I thought it was pretty accurate. Um, while we might focus on the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. He doesn't, he doesn't look at the outward appearance. He's not impressed with beauty or skills, right? From the very moment that these boys were born, they were totally different, right? Isaac loved to eat meat, and so he loved Esau for hunting and providing meat for the family. Jacob was a chill dude. He was a quiet man, peaceful more intellectual. It says dwelling in tents. Sounds kind of like Abraham. He preferred indoors over the outdoors. Rebecca loved Jacob. This favoritism is not healthy parenting. If you're a parent, hear that today, right? Like, this is not good because favoritism breeds conflict, and God doesn't play favorites. Ironically, Isaac and Rebekah's favoritism would cause more division in the family and conflict would rise. Isaac would still try to bless Esau even though God chose Jacob and Rebekah would lose Jacob because he had to flee the wrath of his brother. In the curriculum that we use in the kids ministry here at Red Oak, Generations of Grace, it says this about this story. Each member of the family contributed to its division. A father leading in the wrong direction, a mother at odds with the father, a godless son and a deceptive son. So truly, it's amazing. It's only God's grace that he would use such a messed up family for his sovereign plan. And so Isaac could have also probably loved Esau more because Esau was the firstborn son. That means that he would have had the birthright. He would be the first in line for a double portion of the inheritance. He would receive the blessing passed from God to Abraham and to Isaac and now to Esau. As the holder of the birthright, Isaac would have died and Esau would have been in charge of the family, including all the money, all the land, and all the stuff, which is a really big deal. Because you remember how wealthy Abraham was? You remember how much he got from all the other countries? He had animals, he had land, he had servants, he had money. God provided for them in his sojourning, and they would have been passed on to Isaac, who would have then passed them on to his firstborn, and this would belong to Esau, and Jacob really wanted it. 
which sets up the tension that we see in the narrative. Look at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Have you ever gotten home from a long day work and maybe you were working outside or at the job and you, you walk in and you smell something delicious? This aroma just hits you and you're like, that is awesome. And that's all you can think about. And that's what you really want in that moment. Like it had to have smelled amazing. And maybe he had a really rough day in the field. Maybe he didn't catch anything. Maybe he didn't kill anything. Maybe he didn't even see anything. And he's frustrated. And he's like, Esau's like, I really need to recharge my batteries. I need some food. He's got an empty growling stomach. He's starving. He's exhausted. And if you've ever been in that situation, you know that's not a great combination, combination for good critical thinking, right? So if you've never been told, don't go to the grocery store on an empty stomach because you make unwise decisions, and you see things with your eyeballs, and you want it, even though it wouldn't have been on the list if you would have made a list or if you didn't have an empty stomach. And so there's a fun debate that goes on about what is the stew, right? Because it says that Jacob was cooking this stew in verse 29, but in 30 it says red stew, and in verse 34 it says lentil stew. I think that it was a delicious Brunswick stew. If you ever had one of those, it's just unbelievable. I think that's what it was. Esau says, let me eat some of that. In other words, he's like, let me greedily gulp that down. I want to swallow it up right now. I'll do anything for the stew. I want it now. Give it to me immediately. And Jacob was sneaky. He was a trickster. He wasn't kind. He didn't say, oh, hey, bro. How you doing? Long day in the field? Dude, grab, grab a stool. Grab a, grab a bowl. Come up. Tell me about the hunt. How'd it go? That's not how he reacted. That would have been nice for him to do that, right? It would have been nice for him to serve his brother and to, to think about, like, if he was in that situation himself to share some of the food. But Jacob saw an opportunity to take advantage of Esau's desire. And Esau was, he, he was like, he had something that Jacob wanted. So Jacob's going to try to get it from him. Jacob was not being like Isaac and Rebekah earlier in the, pap in the passage. He didn't patiently wait. He wasn't going to the Lord and waiting on God's perfect timing. He was trying to take something that he wanted. Look at verse 31. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So both men are wanting something more than the Lord. They're, they both have their eyes set on something other than Yahweh. Jacob, the, the birthright, Esau, the food. So Jacob's trying to trick Esau open-handedly. Esau is exaggerating in the situation. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm so hungry. I could eat a horse. I'm famished. I'm starving. I'm about to die. No, you're not, bro. You just, you just really want the stew. It's hard to describe how insane of a transaction this really is. Because a birthright, in many ways, is absolutely priceless. It was, it was, it was almost like paying a million dollars for a bowl of tomato soup. Campbell's tomato soup in the plastic container. Which is gross. Esau downplays his desire 
for the birthright. Like, whatever, bro. I'm about to die of starvation. That's no good to me. So Jacob, seeing that he's willing to, to fall for it, makes him swear. And swearing back then is not like swearing today. Swearing was an, he was taking an oath because your word was everything back then. One binds oneself to a promise when taking an oath, and this was an unbreakable promise. And so Esau amazingly agrees to sell his birthright for a bowl of stew. His focus was on the temporary and made him lose sight of his future inheritance because his God was his belly. Instant gratification got the best of him. He was short-sighted and it cost him dearly. Hebrews 12, 16 tells us that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. So this is a warning for us in the scriptures. Don't be immoral. Don't be godless. Don't be unholy like Esau, who is a man of the flesh, only seeing what's in front of you. Is a bowl of soup really worth the promises of God? No, of course not. But our fleshly desires blind us because sin makes you stupid. You do stupid things when you're blinded by sin, by your own desire. So don't be driven by your appetites. If you do, then you'll exchange what's valuable for temporary pleasure and you'll feel sick later, just like in verse 34. This is what God's word says as we close. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Have you ever done something that you wish you didn't do? I know I have. I know you probably have too. Right? You, you regret it almost immediately. But you can't change it. You can't go back in time and do it over again. And now you're angry at yourself for doing it. That's Esau at the end of this narrative. He gave in to his fleshly desires. We've all been there. We've all done it. We've caved to our bodily desires We've all lived according to the passions of our flesh. We've all carried out the desires of our body and our mind. We've listened to the cravings of our body instead of submitting to the Holy Spirit. So what's your stew? What's your stew? Is it immediate gratification? Is it acknowledgement? Is it immediate praise from people? Is it accolades? I mean, it could be food, could be sex, it could be whatever you're tempted to yield to the quickest. What would you sacrifice your relationship with God to obtain a taste of? What would you do? What do you want that's more important than what God wants for you? Look at verse 34. Those short action verbs that are connected with the conjunction and. They tell us a story in and of themselves. He ate and he drank and he rose and he went his way. He did what he wanted to do. He chose his own way. One commentator said Esau is simply an uncouth glutton. This is a deliberate and willful conscious decision made by Esau. He was not deceived in this. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what he had just done. 
That's why it says he despised it. He hated it. Now Jacob would be the first in line, the heir of promise, receive the blessing even though he didn't deserve it. It's like winning by cheating. You might have won, but you didn't win correctly. Jacob would now be the one through whom the seed of the woman would come. Not because of anything that was in Jacob that was awesome, because clearly he wasn't awesome. And later we'll learn more about how not awesome he was. But because God lovingly uses broken, weak people to accomplish his good, sovereign plan. One commentator said, in the lives of Esau and Jacob, we will see time and time again how God in his grace and for his glory overrules the weakness and sinfulness of his chosen instruments. The gospel triumphs, not through the might or through human goodness, but through God's relentless grace. It's only because of God's relentless grace. Today, we would be wise to put our trust in God's sovereign grace and plan. So whatever you're walking through right now, whatever you're praying through right now, whatever you're praying for right now, be patient. Don't go for the stew. Be patient. Trust God's plan. Wait for his provision. Submit yourself to the Lord. Don't go for the stew. Go for the Savior. Because unlike Jacob, Jesus willingly invites and offers you to be full. Come, those who are hungry. Come, those who are thirsty. And I'll fill you up. I'll satisfy your soul. One thing the church can glean from this passage today is that God in his sovereign grace has chosen to give victory to weak people like you and me. If so, if, you're, if you find yourself tonight, maybe you're like, I've already given in. I've already gone for the stew. I've given in to all of my lustful appetites. I can't even count how many times I've done that. Maybe you're, you're currently giving in. Maybe today you gave in yet again, and you're like, is there any hope for me? Yes, there is hope for you. In closing, I want to read this awesome quote, a little bit lengthy, but it's from a professor whose name is Ian Duguid. And I want you to close your eyes and I want you to listen to this and how he wraps this passage up in the gospel and the hope that we close with tonight. How can God save such great sinners? There's only one hope. He must send a savior who is quite unlike Jacob and Esau and unlike us. We need a Savior who regarded his birthright, being equal with God and receiving the eternal praise of the heavenly host as something not to be grasped greedily, but to freely give up for others. We need a Savior who did not view people as commodities to be used and abused to accomplish his own ends, but rather happily donned a servant's towel and not only cooked for his disciples, but performed the even more menial task of washing their feet. We need a Savior who regarded the birthright of this chosen people to be God's holy children, a birthright that we despised and trampled underfoot as so precious that he gladly purchased it at a price not measurable in gold or silver with the cost of his blood. Such is the Savior Jacob needs. Only the irresistible grace of God can cover his sin and selfishness. Such is the Savior we need. 
Only the irresistible grace of God can cover my sin and self-centeredness. Thanks be to God. Such is the Savior he has provided for us in Jesus. Father God, we need a Savior. Because every single person in the hearing of the words that are coming out of my mouth, in the hearing of the words read from your word tonight, every single one of us is guilty. Every single one of us has gone astray. Every single one of us has rebelled, Lord, and not one of us deserves your grace. Not one of us deserves your love. Not one of us deserves salvation. We've done nothing to earn it. We could do nothing to make you love us or to look attractive to you. Because God, only you can cause dead hearts to come to life. I pray that your sovereign grace would be seen tonight. I pray that we would submit to your sovereign plan. I pray that you would grant eyes to see and ears to hear. God, that there is truly nothing like your word, your grace, and your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.